0: Good morning, my name is Alex, and I serve as Senior Minister here at Knox. We're continuing this morning in our series exploring the biblical foundations of the vision of our congregation. We say it every Sunday, that we are following Jesus, loving the city, and serving the world. And last week we saw one passage that helps us understand what it means to follow Jesus. That it isn't about the things you do, but it's about being made new in Christ. As Jesus called Lazarus out of the tomb, we have the hope of the resurrection and it changes everything for us. So today we come to loving the city and let's pray before we dive into what we just heard read. God the Spirit, you are the fount of inspiration. You are holy and you reveal to us Jesus Christ. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come today and speak your word to us. Encourage us, show us the way we should go. We pray. Amen. I remember my first day as a student at the University of Toronto. I was born and raised here in the city, but my family moved to Boston when I finished high school. And I then took a year off and traveled and taught English in Thailand. The night before I was to begin my studies at U of T, I stayed over with a friend and his dad drove me downtown and dropped me off on St. George Street in front of my residence just a few blocks from here. And I remember my friend's dad said to me, you know, you can be anything you want to be. Remember this day and good luck with your life, kid. (laughs) I wasn't sure how to take that. I think he wasn't trying to put the, world, the, pr- the pressure of the world on me, but uh, um. anyway, I got out of the car with my backpack and entered my undergraduate years. It was this crazy moment when everything was new and everything seemed possible. Uh, my daughter, Lily, who's 17, is having that experience right now. She left on Wednesday for a year of Bible college where she'll be immersed in Christian content and community. And my son, Callum, who's a little older, is in third year at McMaster. In Hamilton, a secular university. But did you know McMaster was founded by Baptist Christians in Toronto in 1888? Its official model still to this day is, in Christ all things hold together, and that's from Colossians 1. But you probably wouldn't know that if you studied at McMaster. They don't advertise that. You'd have to go down the road to Redeemer University in Ancaster for that kind of Christian vision of post-secondary education. So, so many influences in our world, on students, on all of us, so many possibilities. And as parents, Judith and I recognize what critical years these are for our kids. We wonder how they're going to change. What decisions will they make? Where will they end up? Maybe you're in that place yourself right now, starting studies or continuing with your studies. In today's reading, we meet up with Daniel. And you could think of this as another story of a young adult starting school in a new city. But this was quite different. The Jews had been forcibly taken from their home, where the culture centered on God. And here's the question I think Daniel raises for us this morning. How can we live faithfully as followers of Jesus in a culture that mostly does not care about Christian faith, or may even actively oppose it? And we're going to see three things in this passage. First of all, the challenge of exile. Secondly, the call to embrace the city. And third, the promise of homecoming. The refrain that we hear is that God gives hope to those in exile. God is in control no matter how things may appear, and his kingdom will one day fill the earth. Daniel 1 gives us a snapshot of exile, but really it happened in stages. First in 597 BC, when the Jewish leaders were deported, the first wave of exile. Then 10 years later, when the rest of the people were carried off. They were far from home, but in verses 3 to 5 of what we read, you don't get much of a sense of their suffering. Actually, it sounds like they're in pretty good shape, that they're healthy and talented. These young men were introduced to. They would have fit right in with Babylonian culture. Because Babylon was the greatest city in the world at that time. It was at the heart of the world's most powerful empire. It was a center of learning with the most advanced math, science, and technology in human history up to that point. It may have looked something like this. At the time, a city enormous in its scope with buildings like people couldn't have imagined. And you can see in the forefront there the blue gates of Ishtar, who was the goddess of fertility, love, sex, and war. Today, you'll find them in the Pergamon Museum in Berlin. What a place to live, this city of Babylon. Maybe exile wasn't going to be so bad. Sure, their new imperial masters specialized in global domination and would crush anyone in their way, but otherwise, Babylon had a lot going for it. They were going to get a top-notch education not to mention the best food and wine direct from the king's table. This might just be a great opportunity. But our reading raises a number of red flags. Why did the exile happen in stages? Well, because that was the best way to swallow up a nation. You start with young people from the royal family and the nobility, and you force-feed them. You require them to conform to your culture by learning your language and literature. In verse 4, it says they chose young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. It may sound like an episode of The Bachelor, but no, these were the values of the Babylonians. They idolized health, physical beauty, strength, intelligence, knowledge, and achievement. They literally worshipped these things as gods. And so Daniel and his friends were expected to conform to a system in which you used your talents for your own self-interest, to get ahead and to serve the empire. It was the survival of the fittest in Babylon. As Christians, we live today in a world that worships the same gods, or we would say has the same values. We're tempted to idolize them in the same way, Let's be clear that these are gifts from God, all these things, health, beauty, knowledge, and so on. They're good things, but when they become God things, things that take the place of God, when they become ultimate things, we risk losing sight of God and losing the true coherence of our identity, that all things, including you and me, hold together in Christ. That's who we really are. So here's a question for you in a practical way to wrap your head around this. What do you daydream about? Where do your thoughts go when you have a free moment or two? What do you value so much that if you lost it, you might feel like your life was ruined? These good things, we can't take our eyes off of them. And you'll find them reflected on your phone, in the apps you use, the places you go online, what you pay attention to. For some of us, it's money. Do you dream about how to make more money? How to save more? Do you dream of winning the lottery? Maybe you dream about what you're going to buy with the money you do have. Does the desire for money control your thoughts and your actions? God calls us to put money in its place. When God gives us wealth, we're to use it for his glory, he says. For the sake of others, it's to be shared. Christ invites us to give before we receive. And so we give away our money as an act of discipleship. We'll be doing that later in the service this morning. And he addresses the idolatry in our hearts by telling us to find our worth in him. Not in our possessions or how much money we have. Our reading also suggests that if you want to resist losing yourself among the idols of our world, you are going to need Christian friends. In verses 6 to 7, we meet Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. We get a sense of where this three-year degree at the University of Babylon will lead. They are set up to be conformed to Babylonian belief. Israel believed in one God, but Babylon was pluralistic, had many gods, many paths to truth. Truth was relative. Would these four young men forget who they were and turn away from their God? Their Hebrew names all incorporate the name of the God of Israel. Daniel, for one, means God is my judge. But Babylon wanted to take the God out of them to change their identity, and so they were given new names derived from Babylonian gods. Daniel became Belteshazzar, which means Baal, one of their gods. Baal protects the king. How do we respond to the challenge of exile as God's people, as the church? We've seen that conforming to the culture around us is one option. Another is laid out in Jeremiah 28, where the prophet Hananiah predicts the fall of Babylon in two years. He's trying to give hope. To the people of Israel in exile. He tells them to wait and to resist the evil empire until God's judgment comes upon Nebuchadnezzar. Andy Crouch in his book Culture Making says this is another posture Christians can take towards the world around them. We are called to be holy as God is holy. We've sung already this morning about God's holiness a bunch of times. And so one possibility, one posture we can assume is to condemn the world around us and wait for God to judge it. And we can go about our separate business in the church and keep our distance from the culture. Whether we admit it or not, this is what some Christians do. So are these the only two options for us then? To conform to the culture or to condemn it? I think the prophet Jeremiah shows us a third way. He sent a message to Babylon in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah. He writes, This is what the Lord God Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city, the city of Babylon, to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And so there's an alternative to either conforming to or to condemning the culture around us. We can follow Jesus into the cultivation of new life, literally planting gardens, cultivating the land, growing families, growing the economy, building houses, contributing. And we can create the kind of culture that Jesus has in mind when he sends us out to be salt and light, agents of his reconciliation in the world. We can seek the peace, the shalom is the Hebrew word for it, the peace and the prosperity of the city. So Daniel does not condemn Babylon. He embraces it. He becomes an outstanding student of its religion and literature. He accepts his new name. At the same time, he does not conform. He resolves not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. That's a turning point in the passage we read. So why would they make food and wine the issue? Well, perhaps because it was food that had been sacrificed to other gods. But more broadly, I think Daniel and his friends chose to eat only vegetables, not because they opposed richer food, but to keep their focus on the Lord. I'm sure they saw God guiding their studies. They were being equipped for influential positions for a purpose. A new name didn't change that. They knew who they were. But fine food from the king's table could make them fat and complacent, could lead them to forget who they really were. They needed to have their wits about them. They needed to keep their distinctive flavor. And I'm sure they wrestled together with where to draw those lines. Imagine the prayer, the discussion, the debate among the four of them. They remembered Torah, God's law. They remembered the instruction they'd received from their parents, from elders, from teachers, and they applied all of that to their new situation. They were effectively a small group, not unlike our home churches here at Knox. And God showed them the way in that community, how to set limits, how to be holy, how to make a difference. God was with them. And in verse 9, he opens the door for them. It's God who provides. We read that God gave the official favor and compassion for Daniel. It's the same word as at the beginning of this passage when God gave Israel over to Nebuchadnezzar. God is in control even when it doesn't appear that way in our lives. The Apostle Paul writes in the New Testament in Romans 12, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Do you want to be aligned with God's will for your life? What are you going to use your strengths, your influence, your power for? If you want to follow Jesus and love the city, you're going to have to think it through. And we want to be a church at Knox that does that together. This renewing of your mind, this transformation Paul writes about, it's not limited to prayer and Bible study and Sunday worship. No, it grasps and then challenges the patterns of the world. It illuminates school, work, recreation, sports, science, politics. It shed lights on health, beauty, knowledge, and achievements of all kinds. In Christ, all things, all disciplines, all fields, all careers, every sphere of life, all things hold together. Don't trade that in for some food and wine from the king's table. Don't lose sight of the deeper truth and beauty of God's perfect will for you. This Friday is National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. You've heard that already this morning. It's also known as Orange Shirt Day. It's a day when we remember the terrible legacy of residential schools that were run by churches, including the Presbyterian Church in Canada, from 1884 until 1969. Residential schools and the church's complicity in them are an example of what happens when we conform to the patterns of our world. The churches were paid by the government to run them, and in order to get government cash, the church said yes to the food and the wine that came from the king's table. And so the church lost its distinctive flavor and became complicit in the destruction rather than in renewal and reconciliation. Now, as you reflect on that and other examples of where the church has strayed from God's path, it could lead you to despair. But God always gives us hope in the darkness, even if it's just a glimpse. And he does that here in verse 15. Even at an apparent disadvantage, without adequate food, Daniel and his friends end up healthier and better nourished than those who ate the rich royal diet. And then in verse 17, we read, To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning, and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. God is faithful. He gave it to them, and he will give you what you need for what you're facing today. Really, this is the culmination of what happened in verse one of this passage. Two kings were named there, The Jewish king and the Babylonian king. There's a battle and God's people are defeated and so is their God. That's how everyone back then would have seen it. Except we read something surprising in the next verse. We read that the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. It wasn't these two kings. It wasn't power. It wasn't money. It wasn't armies that made these things happen it was the Lord. His people had not been abandoned. God was still with them. He was not defeated. And so Daniel's not really the hero of this story. It's God's mysterious mercy and his surprising presence that lies at its center. He is not a God for winners and for the powerful. He's a God who meets us in our adversity and who shows up in ways we never expected and maybe didn't even want. He is the crucified God, and we see his grace and truth most clearly in his Son, Jesus, who was displaced from his rightful place in glory and came close to us, lowered himself. Jesus did not conform to the pattern of this world, but gave up his power, gave up his very life for us. He took on the sin and the darkness of the world He was wrongly identified as a criminal and a traitor, suffered the worst imaginable injustice. He went into ultimate exile so that through Christ, you and I could come home to God, our true Father. We are called to embrace the culture around us, to cultivate God's goodness in the world as the Spirit leads us, to plant gardens, to plant families, to build houses, to create the kind of culture that Jesus has in mind when he sends us out. We can seek the peace and the prosperity of the city. And that peace is not just the absence of conflict. It's not just an inner calm. It's the spiritual, social, economic, political, and cultural well-being and flourishing of our whole society. Most of the time, I think we want the quick fix, We want what Hananiah offered. We want the two-year version where all the bad things go away. We want the prosperity gospel. But God says, build houses. And that takes time. God says, plant gardens. And they don't grow overnight. God says, marry and have kids and grandkids. And that takes more than one generation. God calls us to be distinct, but not separate. To be in the world, but not of the world. To love the city, but also to continue in our devotion to the one true God. He equips us for a life of serving others. Jesus doesn't use his power for his own benefit. He emptied himself for the sake of others. He went to the cross so we could live. I love the way Andy Crouch maps this out for us in the same book I referred to earlier. He says, so do you want to make culture? And by that he means to cultivate God's goodness in the world. Well then find a community, a small group who can lovingly fuel your dreams and puncture your illusions. Find friends and form a family who are willing to see grace at work in each other who can discern together which gifts and which crosses each has been called to bear. Find people who have a holy respect for power and a holy willingness to spend their power alongside the powerless. Find partners in this wild and wonderful world beyond church doors, and then together make something of the world. God gives us the hope of homecoming through all of the struggles of our lives. We've seen the challenges of exile. We've been tempted to conform to or to condemn the world. We've been called to embrace the city, to cultivate God's kingdom here. And so the Lord declares, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Do we believe that? Do we believe that that hope and that future, that good future are most of all, are only truly in Jesus, in whom all things hold together. He is the one who enters into our exile, whatever your circumstances are today, the trouble you're in. He paves the way to freedom. He sends us out to love our neighbors. But our ultimate hope is that we have been found by God in Jesus Christ. It's by his grace, not by anything we've done. He has gathered us from all the nations, and he will restore what is lost. He will bring us home in the end to the city whose architect and builder is only the Lord. Thanks be to God, who has given us a new hope, an eternal hope, whose love endures forever. Amen. We're going to take a moment now to reflect silently on a couple of questions. The first one is, how are you using the knowledge and understanding God has given you for the sake of others as you follow Jesus into loving the city this fall? What's, what's the tangible thing you can say you're doing with the gifts God has given you for the sake of others? And then secondly, In what practical ways is the Holy Spirit leading you into the distinctive focus and the group of friends you need for that journey? What is the rich food and the wine that you are giving up? What can you name this fall that you are fasting from, that you are not eating? Let's take a few minutes to consider those questions. Mm